Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, Sunday afternoon, I guess. And um, fortunately, I got a sponsor for today. It's a, we're running it a little tight this week. But um, my good friend, the Radomskis from Israel, who I've never actually met, but I've sponsored a number of times, are, uh, came through this week and next week. And I'm doing today's uh, biography podcast <coughs> in uh, memory of two yard sites coming up, right? One on the 20th of Tammuz and one on 24 Tammuz, which is right around the corner. The interesting thing is, this for the grandmother and the grandfather, I asked her who's the names, and it's Rachel Bas Tzvi Yitzhak and uh, Binyamin Ben Yosef Halevi. Uh, let's do the first one first. That'd be the grandmother. But here's the thing. She said her grandfather, they're from Cape Town. They're from South Africa originally, now in Eretz Israel. They really mean Aliyah and uh, in the Gush. And uh, she said her grandfather was one of the Achberg orphans, which is so interesting. I don't think anybody knows it. The cloud, who those people are, unless maybe you're from South Africa. There was, in the Russian Civil War, they killed 100,000 Jews. I'm talking about in the aftermath of the First World War. It was a chaos, you know, Dr. Zhivago. And they killed 100,000 Jews. It's unbelievable. The Ukrainians and all this other junk. And kids are wandering around with families shechted in front of them. It's a mini Holocaust. The only thing is, Hitler was worse, so people forgot about this. And one guy from South Africa, a do-gooder, uh, a Jewish guy from Cape Town, he said, I'm going to be a do-gooder. And he went on his own to Eastern Europe in 1920. And he brought back a bunch of kids, like 200 kids, something like that approximately orphans uh some of them were chopped up and whatever and he brought them to cape town and that's how he grew up and that was a ganadin for them even though they had traumatized and all the rest of it and so one of these people were uh i guess ben yumbin ben yosef alevi was one of those orphans they were the quote-unquote lucky ones it's quite a it's a schindler's list nobody's aware of but it's a jewish guy who helped jewish kids you understand and he had to go to South African government. It's a Gansa story by itself. You know, you know, his name was Achberg. Maybe I'll talk about that some other time. But um, anyway, thanks for the uh, support. And uh, today I was looking for um, the names whose yard sites in the month of Thomas. And I saw the Merkevis Mishnah. And I want to talk about him because I always had like a thing about him. Uh, we're dealing with one of the great rabbis in Poland uh, back in the um, whew, back in the 1700s. So we dealt with a lot of those. This one's a little bit different, although they're all the same. We're dealing with the time of the Baal Shem Tov. So I think everybody's heard, many of you have heard, that one of the reasons the Hasidic movement took off was because so many Jews were turned off by the Yiddishkeit at that time, because it only worked for the top 5%, you know, or the big rabbis or things like this. Most people, Amaratsim, 
and uh, you know there was no connection between them and so the Hasidic movement, the Rebbe's emerged out of that whole environment <coughs> to give the average person a shaykhis. Uh Well, our hero today was one of that 1% <laughs> for whom life was good. Uh, a member of the rabbinic elite. As a matter of fact, he's from a percent of the percent at the very top of the pile because he was a millionaire too. <laughs> so for some Jews in Poland, it, well, life was good. Um, so let me, I'm talking about Shlomo of Helm. So this is somebody I'm describing today somebody from the elite elites of yesteryear, the kingdom of Poland in its last century that I've spoken about so many times, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which of course no longer exists. And so they say endlessly, this was a huge empire that once existed in Eastern Europe and uh, in the 1700s it was equal to Poland and to Ukraine and Belarus, Lithuania and so forth. It was huge. And the Jews... And there, although, you know, they had problems, but they also had it good. And in the lifetime of our hero, at least for most of it, they still had it good, relatively speaking. If you regard living in a um, cultural insularity situation as good, which they did. Okay? This is the last hurrah of cultural insularity in the old kingdom of Poland before the country was taken over by the Russians and others, and then things changed for much worse. So he was born in 1717, and he died when he was 64 years old in 1781 uh, from a plague. So that doesn't, you know, that could happen. You know what I'm saying? You can even go to health, and in those days, you get hit in the wrong place. I'm a gay for like the corona, you're just gone. That's all. It doesn't matter how old you are. Uh, so that's what happened to him. And it wasn't in Poland. It was elsewhere, as we shall see. So here's somebody who lived his life, so to speak, in the heart of Poland, Poland. And um, he's from Zamosh, which was a famous city. I knew people from there. Anyway, became a rabbi. Many famous communities. So you might say, this is a guy who was working at the very top of the pile. Right? Um, he was this, born in 1717 in the old Poland. His father was a millionaire. His father was a great Tamachachem and the rabbi of the city. So he had everything he needed. Um that time you had some people who were good in business and good in learning. Um, and the wife was also from an elite family. So we're, like I said before, we're dealing with the 1% for whom the system worked very well. Okay? Except in our case, he used it Latov, uh, as we shall see. So here we have family of Torgadu and Malcolm Echad. The father obviously hoped that his son would grow up to be a big and famous rabbi and so forth and also a rich man. And that's what happened. So once in a while you have these stories. And later he married a millionaire. You know, so let's put it this way. Money was not an object in his life. The question is, what does that money do to you? To the end, it can go a lot of ways. It can go a lot of ways. In his case, to my mind, it became very uh, interesting. Because we have a young hero who, from an early age, was obviously Eloy. He happened to like learning. It's still the golden age of cultural insularity. So even if you're rich... It's still a very from type environment. So if you want to excel intellectually, you're going to throw yourself into Gemara and that sort of thing. And he does. And it was a big Eloy. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about him. And eventually, no shots and post him and all that, you know, cold. You know, in, in, in that way. And, however, he's also a son of a... He's rich, too. And being a member of the elites, and being who he was personally, uh, I'm going to tell you my take on this. That's all I ever do. 
these big rich families were merchants among other things that's not all they were you have to understand somebody's a rove of a city who's also a successful merchant has a cosmopolitan home in which the boy grows up you don't just see the same people from the shtetl all the time but on the contrary you see people from faraway places doing business deals uh transporting goods um you know talking about the what's going on in the current events because you always have to know what's going on in current events for business purposes while at the same time learning 15 hours a day 18 hours a day I mean, i'm serious maybe 20 hours a day the the, the two go together and he never went to yeshiva as is the case with many gedolim in that time he just learned by his father uh the father was a big time the kid is a genius you don't need a yeshiva you know zamash is a town Believe it or not, you never heard of it, but it was a prosperous town. These towns in Poland, because they had pure capitalism, you know, under the rule of the, of the no, nobility, the nobility got their, their, their take, you know, their 50% or whatever percent off the top, but the rest was for the people and the merchants and the others had a grand old time. Because I'll say it again, it was, it was like a pure capitalism. And the whole Poland was, a, I've said many times, the whole Poland at this time was a flea market, one big flea market, and that's how life was lived. So these guys flourished in that so what i'm trying to say is don't imagine like in you know, a fiddle on the roof or something like that yeah they had shoals and they had base managers and this guy learned at home and in the base manage and all this kind of stuff we learned up a storm and if you want to talk in learning there are plenty of people in town where you can talk in learning but it's also true as i said before that all kind of goods pass through and among the goods that pass through are books and the books of all languages and the books are all types and don't think an intellectually precocious child like this wasn't interested in what the other books have to say also. And so, most unusually, our hero, while putting it, I, I, I'm not exaggerating when I say he definitely learned 18 hours a day, maybe more, no question about it. But at the same time, he also, here and there, will be interested in stuff outside of just Gamar, Gamar, Gamar. Now, I repeat, he spent rove of the day in Gamar, Gamar, Gamar. That's why he became a big gong. And when I say Gemara, Gemara, I mean with with the Rishonim, Shulchanach, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> but like I said before, rare book dealers come by. This one comes by. That one comes by. You hear ideas, and so he was interested in himself. Probably his father got him a tutor. I don't know. Into himself in picking up a secular education, which is most unusual. Okay. Now, um, and he picked up. And he talked. He says so in his Abraham. You know, he got he got an education in math, science, according to that time. Or mainly geometry, uh, uh, you know, algebra, uh, astronomy, you know, things of that nature. Very practical sorts of business. But if you know who he was, he also knew other things as well. So here we have an unusual guttle because, uh, again, it's the old Poland. And so Rover at the time, he's putting into traditional pursuits. But he's quite great, let's put it that way, for the other thing as well. In his time, was published for the first time in a couple hundred years, the Mernabuchim. Uh, a guy like this, he has all the advantages of not being an yeshiva. The advantage of not being a yeshiva is you're not a cookie cutter, you don't have to conform with anybody else wants. Your own teva leads you how to grow as a gadol. You know, with your own natural disposition and talents will guide what interests you. And a guy like him is obviously with his with his uh, interest in math, logic, 
uh, geometry and so on and so forth, you see somebody who has like a, what we call today, a logical mind, okay? Your logical mind. And so if you're that type, you're going to eventually be a very Maimonidean Rambam type guy. You'll be a Rambam type guy, so your mom is going to throw yourself, if you're this guy, into the Mishnah Torah and that sort of thing, and know everything by heart. And, you know, uh, the Rambam will be your hero, as he says he was to him. And when the Marnabuchan comes out, he'll be Mayana. He'll read the Marnabuchan very closely. This is not your typical Godel of the 18th century, although there were a fair number like that. You know, there certainly were. Uh, now, Yaakov Amdun was a contemporary, but said, I don't believe the Rambam wrote the Marnabuchan. Yeah, but this guy believes it, <laughs> right? And uh, eventually to him, the Rambam will be a hero. So he's a masculine, but of course, in a completely different sense than we typically use the term. And it's just interesting that his town, Zalmash, were living a bunch of famous masculine of the first wave, including Yisrael Zalmash, who was the Rebbe, shall we say, of Moses Mendelssohn, who wrote that uh, commentary on the uh, Kuzri that the Fermi still used. Uh, whatever it's called, the, the one, not the Kol Yehuda, the other one, and uh, uh, other Rafal Levi, there were a whole bunch of proto masculine in there, who were Taka condemned and criticized by others for being too fry, but not our hero, because there's nothing you can say about him. He learns twenty four seven, so he looks like a. For people like that, it's okay. You understand? Everybody said like this: if you really, really, really are Mimali Kresa Bashas Poskim. Really, 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 really. And, you know, you're plugging away. All right. You know, even the Vilna Gaon was like that, right? To learn science and math. Because, uh, you know, you want to know the Chachmas. And second of all, helps you with a lot of the Dinim and the Gemara and so on and so forth. Still, at the end of the day, it's quite unusual for somebody to grow up in this environment and not just be into Pilpul or Lumbus and so forth, but rather to have this wider net. Now, being who he was... Uh, born at the right time in the right family, it may actually eventually a sort of a Rappaport, you know, that's one of those elite families, like a dozen elite families of the rabbinic world in Poland in the 16th and 1700s and afterwards, and uh, married the right girl, you know, I forget he married some zillionaire, so, uh, and, and her brothers were loaded, and nobody minded supporting him for the simple reason Nobody minds if you're not wasting your time. Correct? If the guy's going to be Taka Goro, you don't mind. Agreed? You know, if the person's not wasting your time, and it's really learning of a storm, and will be a Goro Ador, then it's a good investment. <laughs> right? They, at least, you know, from the businessman perspective, I'm getting value for money. What you don't like is, you know, you're, you know, you're giving somebody money, spending all the time in the coffee shop, you know, taking coffee breaks. Uh, that's not who our hero was. And uh, therefore, since he's in the right, you know, fat environment, he was a member of the elite. So from a young age, since he was clearly an up-and-coming Godel, and Eloi and all the rest of it, so he became a rabbi, you know, he got himself at Estella as one of the uh, rabbis in one of the communities in Poland. You know, makes sense. And, um, I mean, no, let's put it this way, why not? They went to Chelm, okay? We came in Rabbi Echelm. Now here, talking about Chelm, I have to say something. Many people think they heard stories of the Chelm or like a you know, town of dummies and so forth, and there are many jokes along those lines. 
It was a basic staple of the old Jewish humor, you know, the Helm and all the rest of it. I grew up with the Helm stories from my father and whatever. That's true. But to be perfectly honest, is it disgusting? The Helm stories were invented by the Maskilim in the 19th century to make fun of the Frum people in Helm. You get it? Helm was an a important Jewish city. Had a large, important Jewish community down to the Holocaust. Usually, there were businessmen who were fairly successful. This is true in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s. Um, it was a stronghold of the Frum. So that means there were big chalukadeus, big fights between the Frum and the Nafrum, and the Maskilim and the Hasidim and all that. And as a certain revenge, the Maskilim, who were writers, they created the genre of the Chachmei Chelm, the wise men of Chelm who are really dumb and stupid. And the idea is to make fun of the from Jews. Uh, it's just that the jokes are funny. So it took off, and everybody knows today, like in modern Hebrew, you're telling you from Chelm, you know, it's, it's, that itself is already a joke. But really, it's not fair. Chelm was a famous community. The Yeshivas there and things like this. The Bach was there, the Marshal was there at different times. It was an important community. So we have to differentiate between the helm of myth, which is a myth created in the second half of the 19th century, that's all. All the helm jokes and all that stuff is about 150 years old, you know, 180 years old, something along those lines, made by uh, by poison pen writers. There's nothing to do with the reality of it. There really was a place called helm. There was nothing funny about it. And our hero, uh, Shlomo, uh, the Rappaport, he became the rabbi there for so and so many years. Back in the old Poland, Chelm was the head of Medina. So was, if you'd have roved there, you'd have like a, a, a province. You'd have a basin of the city of Chelm, plus nine Kehillas that were subject to them. It was an important community, especially the guy was only 20-something years old. But in those days, if you were from the right family, and you were Tom Chacham, which he was, and you had the right money, you could get a show like that. And I would say in his lifetime, he floated from Superstella to Superstella simply because he had the money, the background, all the rest of it. But he also had the Schaira. <laughs> you get it? No, he wasn't going out there. That's my point. It's not purely protexia. He really had the stuff. But on the other hand, if he would have been a poor guy from a nothing family, married to a nobody, and so on and so forth, I don't think it would have happened. Uh, now, while he was there, as I said before, he was a person whose natia is uh, to the left and not to the right. He was interested in Kabbalah and things like that. It's not who he was. Now, he knows Shas and all that stuff cold. Uh, and Shas and Chubas and Shulchan Aruch and the Nozikalim and the Rishonim and the Achronim cold. That was his meat and potatoes. But he was interested, you know, I would say more in medieval Jewish philosophy type books. Mechkar. You know, Marnebuchim, Kuzri, Chavaz Alvavos, Seferikrim, that sort. So it's all kosher, but it represented a, 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 a rabbinic, masculine type of interest, um, which is which is kind of interesting, okay? Therefore, um, a guy like him would have no time for the rising Hasidic movement. Uh, this is very controversial, uh, because in his Sefer he criticized him, or at least he can be seen to. 
there's big historical historians debate this. Uh, but that's who he was. Eventually, after he was in Helm, he got another show, I forget where, maybe in Zamash, he ended up uh, succeeding his relative to be the chief rabbi of Lemberg, Lvov, which was like the biggest shtela in Poland. You know, certainly in Galicia. It's only the top guys got into there, and he was on the top level. And that's how he spent his career. Right? At the top of the Polish rabbinical hierarchy. He was a member of the Barosas, and so on and so forth. <coughs> he himself was very ambitious. There's nothing wrong with that at all in Torah. And since he was a fan of the Rambam, because it's clear he became a fan of the Rambam, because the Rambam has this mathematical approach. It's very clear, very organized, very logical. You know exactly what I mean, right? So he became a fan of the Rambam. And as was the style, he wrote a chibur on the Rambam. I would say that he's a member, at least in my mind, which is all you ever get, of an 18th, just a very interesting 18th century phenomenon of a revival of, of Maimonidean interest in the super from world, which took the form, not of commentaries on Murnavuchim, but of Lamdisha commentaries on the Mishnah Torah. It's just very interesting. If you look in general, the 1700s, it seems to me, right off the bat, at the top of my head, I think of the Mishnah Malach, who was a Sephardi. I think of our hero, who's going to write a very famous commentary on the Rambam. I think of the Shah Um I think there's a couple others. So what you're doing is, you're you're going through the Sugyas, but you're doing it through the Rambam, which, as we know, became very popular in the 19th and 20th centuries, and that's your briskers and or and so on and so forth. It's a, you understand, there's many ways of going through Torah and writing Chedushim and things like that. One of the ways is to do it through the Yad HaZaka, through the Rambam. It's not the only way, but it's one of the ways, and that's who our hero was. So he put, so already in his 20s, he's working like crazy on the first volume, he's number Kevis Mishnah. I have to tell you, the reason I'm interested in the subject and my eyes lit up when I saw the name of the yard size, is because when I was much younger, um, long ago, so I discovered this um, Rambam with the Nakudos. What's it called? The Rambam La'am. At the Hebrew College Library. You never saw it in, in, in Baltimore, you know, in the yeshiva or something like that. I don't know why, but it's it is. And you know me, I like the Nakudos. And so I used to take it out volumes till later in my life I got a set. And I like the fact that the Rambam there is just presented by itself without all the fruits out, all the mafarshim. It enables you to concentrate on just what the Rambam's saying. Obviously, if you want to be Mahayan in a particular thing, you get a regular Rambam, you see what the Rambam, you know, the Rivet and the, the Magi Mishnah and so forth say. But I like this system. And eventually, there was a time in my life that whenever I learned Gemara, I would do it together with the Rambam and so forth. I found it uh, worked for me. And also, over the course of time, I liked the, uh, you know, the Kahadi type commentary at the bottom. I thought it was very good. Still do. And I noticed, I was much younger, and I noticed that whenever there was some kind of lumdish question in the Rambam, you know, as there is from time to time, and they would give an answer, very often it was from the Merkevus Mishnah. I didn't even know what the Merkevus Mishnah was. Like, you didn't hear about Yeshiva so much. Not when, not as far as I remember. And I usually liked the approach. When I saw the terrors that he gave, it kind of it resonated with me. 
maybe they used the other Mepharshim Malta the bottom, but I remember a fair amount of times the Merkevis and Mishnah. Uh, and I mentioned Yeshiva Pi, you know, wasn't exactly a favorite. Uh, and I made it my business to get it later. And I liked it always very much. Uh, it's a classic 18th century, you know, prose commentator to Rambam. He undertakes, because he's defending his hero, uh, Mamish, you know, to for him for all the uh, rivets. Anytime the rivet has a kasha on the Rambam, he tries to answer it. And also other Rishonim that ask kashas on the Rambam. But basically, he's working through his way into Lomdas. You just have to go read it. It's a, you know, very, it's a, look, he, he, he's a gone. And, you know, you get a guy, get a guy in the material. Because it's clear that this guy knows all this stuff. And he can deploy it. So it's not exactly like the Shah HaMelch, but something along those lines. And they're all 18th century. Um, and it's very interesting. Now, he published the, the first volume, and the lady published the second, eventually the third. Uh, as a matter of history, it had a funny history. Those who knew about it were Machshavit very much, because they're very Chashavit safer. Uh, but it didn't circulate too much. I'm not exactly sure why. Only, I'd say in the 20th century, did the Mechavah's emissions take off, as far as I can see. Uh, but still, to this day, as far as I'm aware, I have a copy I bought many years ago. I still haven't seen, like a, uh, which I would like to see, a, uh, what do you call it? You know, like Machon Yerushalayim, with the black covers, which is what they did to the Shara Melch. Shara Melch, you know, talking about like they do to the, to the Mechaz Chinuch, where you have the full thing, and you have the uh, explanations at the bottom, and cross-references and people who have, uh, you know, discussed him, discussed what he's saying, uh, a nice job, let's put it this way, on the Merkabah Mishnah. At least I'm not aware of it, right? Uh, if there is, I'd be interested in finding out. Uh, but I always, like I said before, it always stuck with me, and I still remember to this day a few of the things I saw brought down at the bottom of the Rambam Mom, and he's very good. And this Safer, in his time, when the first one came out, which started Hilcha Shabbos, later on he went and did other parts, uh, made a big Rosham, and therefore he became a big guy. Now, uh, as a big guy in Poland, you're one of the establishment. So you're in the Vada Barosas. And they um, dealt with all the big controversial questions of the 18th century. And so one of them was the end and Abish's controversy, you know, where both sides said, support me. And the Vada Barosas supported, you know, St. Abish's. And, uh, that's why it's funny. He, Yaakov Emden, anybody supported the Aishans, was automatically a Kaifer. So he said, oh, this guy, Shlomo Chalma, he's a Shabtai Tzvi. I mean, that's ridiculous beyond belief. You know, I'm just saying, it goes to show you the quality of Lashon Hara that was floating around in the 18th century. Uh, the best one, or the Yekis and the Hasidim, each one didn't like him for a different reason. And he he was, again, in the Vada Barazos, in um, the 1760s, uh, so that's not the Emdenatius controversy. Emdenatius fight was in the 1750s, but in 1760, uh, you know, they would send these questions all to the Barbarossa, and basically each side is saying, support me. So the big fight at that time was the get of Cleves, to get me Cleva. I don't know if you know about it or not, but uh, very often in Jewish history, there have been huge 
uh, disputes, sometimes ugly, uh, in fact, almost always ugly, involving a get, a controversial get, where one side said to get is valid, the other side to get is not valid. We had an American not long ago, you know, it was on all the blogs, I won't go into details. It got pretty, it got pretty ugly, you know, um, and they didn't mind dragging the names of famous rabbis through the mud. Yeah, those who know what I'm talking about know what I'm talking about. And you had that at that time also. And the long and the short of it was that there was a certain get. The question was the guy, whether the, the whether the the chassa, whether the husband was nuts. If he was nuts, literally, it was insane. Then the get doesn't count. The girl's an aguna, aguna. If uh, if he was not insane, illegally, then the get is valid. She can go and marry whoever she wants. Oh boy, the whole world went crazy over this, because the Besden that did the get obviously said we checked him out and he was sane. And the girl's family, they got the basin of Frankfurt because she was a had relatives there. Uh, and that was a hush of a basin, you know, to say that the guy was insane and therefore she can't get married. And that's where all hell broke loose. And all the Gedolim uh, intervened pro the girl. Did I say it right? You know, I said it backwards. The, the guy's side was from Frankfurt. So therefore, they said he still married her. That's how it goes. Right? Because if you say she's an Aguna still, so no, you're not pro the girl. So all the Gedolim were pro the girl. They said that the get is okay, she can get remarried. I mean the Nota Behuda, I mean the Shagasarye, Yaakov Emden, I believe, Yosef um, Steinhardt, you know, all the big names. And our hero, the Merkevis Mishnah. He also said, you know, he was one of the Rabbanim in the Vada Barazas, they said, the girl's right. Uh, and that the Frankfurt Basin should back off. The Frankfurt Basin would not back off. <laughs> That's the famous story. They would not back off. And they said, the whole world is wrong, we're right. The girl cannot remarry. If she does remarry, it'll be Mamzerim. If she does not remarry, we give her a bracha and so on and so forth. And this is where the, where the uh, what should I say, the local patriotism went uh, uh, nuclear. And uh, maybe you've heard the story. They, they, uh, this is very yakish. They said, okay, no relative of the Nota Behuda can ever have a job in Frankfurt. <laughs> I don't know why he wants one, but, you know, that was their way of, of getting back at the Nota Behuda for backing the girl. It's in the, it's in the Drosh's, uh, Slach, and the Nota Behuda says, isn't it a shame? They knew they were wrong, but they came back off because the guy had gotten away. That's what he said. You understand? That's what he said. And he said, I swear to you <laughs> that the girl's okay, she can get married. I'm as sure, I remember the language of Nerebihuda. I'm as sure that she can get married as I'm certain that the Mashiach is coming this year. <laughs> Which tells you who the Nerebihuda was. You know, that degree of certainty. You know, this is the old school. So our hero, Merkevitz Mishnah, backed the girl. And so they put out junk against him. And uh, the Hasidim at that time was also uh, part of that because they didn't like the fact that he was a Misnagyah. Because he had bad things to say about the Chassidim. Which, from the point of view of the rabbinic elite, you know, you could hear. I don't know if he understood exactly the way it was, but, you know, he, he knew the Baal Shem Tov. I mean, this has come out in recent scholarship. Okay? Uh, matter of fact, not long ago, I was on a Zoom. I can't remember. A Zoom, you know, because of the corona. And a very good researcher from Eretz Yisrael. Uh, I forget his name. Uh, Carliner, very good, and uh, he had some stuff to say about uh, the fact that uh, the Merkevitz Mishnah, uh, you know, 
the new one there, because there's a, one time recorded that Balshanto, who lived in eastern, southeastern Poland, Galicia, moved, you know, uh, on a journey, went to Shklova, if I remember correctly, and stopped in these towns along the way, and Rekhevus mission was one of the rabbis who criticized him, something along, and if I don't have it exactly, but something like that. And so between the Ekis, and this is the part I wanted to share, between the Ekis and the Hasidim, they're all Lashahar experts, and uh, they put out things, and they said about our hero, uh, what, how's it go? Number one, number one, it goes to movies, okay, to plays. Uh, <laughs> suppose I told you the Satan Rebbe goes to the movies. But you want to know something? The way of Lush and Horror goes like this. You put it out there, people kind of believe it a little bit. And there's a certain type of idiot, and I know this type of idiot very well, uh, male and female, and they say, well, how do you know it's not true? <laughs> you get it? There's a certain idiot out there. How do you know it's not true? Suppose I told you from Moshe Fines who went to the movies. You know, so I said, hey, you know, maybe this is one thing. Uh, now, what it really was, as best as I can tell, as best as I can understand it, which is all I can ever give you, it's very interesting. He was a big merchant as well as a, a, um, Rav. Uh, now, maybe he wasn't a practicing merchant so much because, you know, he had his brother-in-law running the business and so forth. But here, I just want to give you a slice of realia. He used to go to the great fairs, like in Leipzig and places like that in Germany. So this is the 18th century. Just imagine Europe, or at least Eastern Europe, was one big flea market. But where do the flea market people get things? From the flea market of the flea market, which they used to call the Yerid, the fair, the international fair. And she so would come there, and like in, like I say, in Eastern Germany and Leipzig and places like that, and Jews especially come from all over the place, along with others. Everything you can imagine was for sale there, okay? Everything you can imagine was for sale there, and that's how people did business, okay? The merchants came with the cash or whatever, the credit, whatever system they had, and, uh, you know, you bought your schaira there, and then you arranged for it, transport it to where you live, and then you sell it where you are in Poland. When I say Poland, I mean the whole Eastern Europe. That is how life was lived. So what do you find? Now, listen closely. What do you find at the fair? You name it. Any kind of uh, material, any kind of food, I don't know, you know, any kind of uh, uh, clothing and furniture, and whatever, implements, you name it. Well, guess what? You know who was always also at the fairs? Uh, Jewish stuff. You know who was at the fairs? Stefanski types. People with rare farm, out of print stuff, or hard to get, or newly printed. And so a lot of Rabbanim would go to these fairs, and they're mainly interested in these farm area. Get it? Now, it's, the main thing is not that, but one of the stalls, or two, or three, or ten, whatever, were these booksellers. And our hero, who had money, right, he would travel over there. Well, look what they turned into. He said, oh, he goes to Leipzig, right? And he goes to the movies, to the Schauspieler, right? The Comedias, which means the plays. Right? Yeah, you believe that? <laughs> Hebrew went to the went to the movies, uh, but this is, you know, what I'm trying to say is like this: when it comes to Lashon Hara, you know, they'll say anything, and as I said, the main point is some believe it, some believe it, and it's, it's how it's how life goes. Uh, I don't think most people know about this. Gideon was able to get me that article from Bick this morning, uh, uh, Gideon mail from Houston, which was a so-so, but. 
Uh, but that part was uh, correct. And uh, that's not all. Then they said another piece of Lush. So in other words, let's put it this way. Those who were on the guy's side in the head of Cleves, and also the Hasidim who didn't like the fact that he's a misnogget, so they're putting out dirt about him, make him look bad. Um, so that way, even though he's opposing your cause, well, he himself is bad. All which is baloney, but that's how that's how Jews operate, <clears throat> I'm sorry to say. Uh, they did the same thing with Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu. This is uh, Shlomo Chelm, Shlomo Chelma, it's the name of our hero. Well, they did it with a guy named Moshe Rabbeinu. Uh, Korach, uh, Chazal tell us, uh, accused Moshe of carrying on affairs with married women. Moshe Rabbeinu, <laughs> Moshe Rabbeinu. I know exactly how it works. Some people say this, how do you know it's not true? <laughs> yeah. You see, Moshe Rabbeinu, how do you know it's not true? Maybe, the, you know, the expression, if it smoke is fire, this is how Lush and Har operates. Uh, the other thing they did, and this is really funny to me, they accused him of scandalous behavior. What was the scandalous behavior? <laughs> he, <laughs> he played chess at home with his own wife. <laughs> right? You know, when Sam Stranfield Hirsch tried to be the rabbi, chief rabbi in uh, Nicholsburg in Moravia, which is more Eastern European than Yakish, uh, the old school Orthodox were scandalized because Hirsch, who was now the rav of the, the chief rabbi of the Medina, was seen walking in the street on Shabbos with a woman, his wife. You don't do... You know, it's, it's a scandal. You couldn't imagine a rubber of the old school walking side by side with his own wife. That was considered like X-rated. Um, which is ridiculous, but you know, that's that's the way it was once upon a time. Um, and so or, here he wasn't even talking about that. He's in the house playing chess with his wife. What's indecent about that? What's a scandal? You see how <laughs> you see how people work? How the Lush and Hara don't go for anything? Uh, I actually think that's... First of all, Probably it's a lie, right? The same way they lied about the other thing, probably they lied about this because these people are muxik kafir, muxik chakra. They're liars. That's for starters. But let's say it was true. Let's just pretend it was true. I think that's kind of interesting. He was a going out there, biggest rabbi in Poland. He's a mechaber and mechaber's a mission on the Rambam, all the rest of it. And he obviously was married to a smart girl. You know, she came from an elite family. Maybe they played chess. What's the problem? <laughs> What's the problem? But from a Hasidic point of view, from the old school point of view, they try to make that <laughs> into uh, a scandal. I think it's kind of funny. The MS is, nowadays the best thing would be somebody should walk, some big girl should walk in the street with his wife. I'll tell you why. Teach others how to treat a wife. I did it Sabina Rub a couple weeks ago. He, he would um, tell young guys when they got engaged, so I want you to move in with me and see how I conduct myself with a wife. So you know you're not marrying a chavrusa. You should learn how a husband's supposed to behave with a wife. You know, you're not, you're not marrying a chavrusa. not marrying a dormitory roommate. So these are the hasogas of once upon a time long ago. It's a, it's a, it's a weird. But we know the Jews. So we're like that. Listen, what can you do? We're like that. Uh, and he, I forget there was another. If you're a big rov in any century and certainly 18th century so you're going to have something by the way what happened in the, in the you're going to have fights like the get of cleave you know what happened in the get of cleaves all hell broke loose and everybody called each other names and all these 
big rabbis publish stuff, and the others I published anti stuff, and pamphlets are written back and forth, and everybody called everybody Amarts, and this and that and the other. And after all hell was spent, all hellfire was spent, after all the dust settled, the boy and the girl remarried. Can you believe it? The boy and the girl remarried. Uh, it's a famous, he said, Harayat owed Mekudeshously. Ah. So if that's the case, two idiots, you cause so much trouble for nothing. You get it? Cause them for nothing. But okay, that's the, uh, what do you call it, the anticlimactic ending of the Get McCleaves. Uh, but he was involved in another thing. Ten years later, in the 1770s, I think it was, uh, he supported, it was also a big scandal, which was given by the Prima Gunna, by the way. You know, our hero wrote the Haskam of the Prima Gunna. So the Prima Gunna gave a get. Now, I'll tell you something. Me, myself, and I, if somebody had a get that was issued by a Prima Gunna, I would say it's good. But there was some issue with it, I forget exactly what, and people challenged it the same way, and um, and he backed him, and then they cussed him out also for backing that. So to be a rabbi, you have to have, what's the right, uh, thick skin, I guess. Broad shoulders and thick skin. And our hero had that. Uh, but now here comes the interesting part. I mean, all this is interesting, but in, uh, unusual. I said before that one of the features of the 18th century is this interest in the Rambam, which I think attracted a certain type of got old because of interest in the logical side. Um, and that's certainly the case of our hero. But also, another very interesting of the 18th century is the interest in Eretz Yisrael. There were um, rumors that the Mashiach is coming very soon. I'm, I'm serious about this. There were many people believed that the Shnasa Ge'ul is Takahir. Um, people dashed in Pesukim and all kinds of things like that. There's a lot of Kabbalah running around. Now, it was all wrong, obviously, but people thought it, including the Vilnagon. And they made their old calculations. They got it wrong, but they you know, made all their calculations. And therefore, you find, uh, in the 18th century, as a function of being very, very firm, that people want to make Aliyah. Uh, even though Eretz Yisrael was not in great shape at that time, but they wanted to do it. And I would say the modern state of Israel, the modern Yishuv, more or less dates, you know, to the 18th century. The Sephardim in their way, that's a whole separate story I don't want to go into now. And the Ashkenazim in their way. I think I've talked about this maybe in the past once or twice. At the time I'm talking about, um, which is the second half of the 18th century, the Sephardim were in control. The uh, Vada Bakidim, the um, committee of rich Turkish Jews in Istanbul, because remember, Palestine was part of the Turkish Empire. And um, the Israelis had run everything into the ground. You know, they overspent and, the, you know, they, they, they uh, reduced the, the Jewish community to beyond poverty. And they were, you know, getting way over their head in debt and robbing Peter to pay Paul and so forth. Ponzi schemes and whatever. Until, uh, and it was all falling apart, Mamish. Until these um, rich Turkish Jews, big businessmen, bankers and things like that who lived in the capital city of the Turkish Empire in Istanbul, they said, we're taking over, and they uh, uh, demanded that the Israeli Jews, which weren't many, you know, surrender all the uh, financial control to their hands, hands of these bankers and businessmen, because you guys obviously don't know what you're doing, and it'll take, uh, it'll take people like us with business experience 
to fix the situation. They wanted to do it the Tov, you understand? But they said Israel is too serious to be left to the Israelis. And uh, they were able eventually to get... I talked about this once. I'm Gershon Kutover, so you'll listen to that. Uh, and uh, and they were able eventually to persuade the Ashkenazim that uh, along the same lines that um, they should allow uh, this Sephardi committee uh, to control the Aliyah. Okay? Uh, basically what they're saying is like this. Basically what they're saying is no independent fundraising, no Mishalochem, Stam and the Rhine, no kind of junk we have today. Just be one kitty, one kupa, uh, be run by, a, by, the, by the Richie Rich Committee in Istanbul. On the up and up, totally Lishma, because these guys didn't need to do this. They had very full and rich and productive lives themselves. They're doing this Lishma. And they will introduce, what's right, a controller and uh, you know budgeting process and let the right people in Israel keep the right people out, uh, and uh, make sure that there's enough money collected into a central kitty to support the individual people living in Israel shouldn't starve, but only the right people should come. Uh, you don't want the wrong type of person in Israel, that's always the case. Uh, and they, that's how they ran it. And they did a good job, by the way. They did a good job. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that, but that's the era that our hero lived in. And uh, in his lifetime, the Ashkenazim actually cooperated with this Friday. They trusted these bankers and their children. Uh Buda was a key element in this whole uh, network. And uh, and it worked. Okay, So I want to be clear. The Ashkenazim at that time sent their money to the Sephardim in Istanbul. The Sephardim had it all collected in one central fund. And the central fund ran Israel, the Yishuv in Israel like a business. I mean that in a good way, not in a bad way. Like a logical business, rational business, with the expenses and the income and the outcome. And, uh, you know, if you're Ashkenazi, you could come, but you do it in coordinated fashion, get it? And none of this business is somebody comes back and says, I guess, well, I'm collecting, you know, or for my own, or, you know, the old business. Where is your Tuda? You know, in Baltimore, we have a Tuda. Well, you know, uh, they wanted to give me, but it got lost. That's baloney, you know. So there's a reason they didn't give you a Tuda. So, you know, that whole system. Now, um, that's the way the Vilna was going to go to Israel. You know, he made an attempt. It didn't work out. He was going to go through that way. And uh, later on in the 1770s, uh, which would be after the, the Baal Shem Tov died in 1760, and the Magad of Mezrich died in 1772, and then many of their disciples, led by by the Rebbe of the Balatanya, Menachem Mendelevitevsk, and some others, made, uh, you know, Kalisker and all this, they all made Aliyah, I think in 1777. These are Hasidim. So the Hasidim were the first ones that went as a group and started the modern Ashkenazi Yishuv. There were a few Yechim beforehand, like Kutavar, but basically this was the first group. Uh, a few years later came the Litvaks, the, the, the Misnagdim, they called the Prushim. So the Hasidim are the Hasidim, and the Talmidia grow and all that is called the Prushim. This all happened in the late 1700s. All which goes to show you that there was something in the air. Get it? The Balshantim in his lifetime wanted very much to go to Israel. There are rumors he went. I don't think it's true, but it doesn't matter. You know, it was a big item in his agenda. Uh, the Orachayim from Morocco went there. Uh, it was such a such an era. Okay? I think really people felt 
for a whole bunch of reasons that are too complicated to go into now with how they uh, messianic, uh, what do you call it, uh, predictions, that people really felt that the 18th century is going to be Mashiach Uh Now, our hero was part of that. Uh, I don't know if it's exactly Mashiach site because being a Maimonidean, he'd probably be very skeptical about that. The Ramam always warns you, don't go and count when the Mashiach is coming because you're going to get it wrong. But having said that, I think independent of that, because he wasn't that tight. He just wanted to move to Eretz Yisrael. <laughs> a Jew wants to live in Israel. Done. I don't have to explain why. A Jew wants to move to Eretz Yisrael. And he was rich. He could afford it. Everybody knows. How do you make a small fortune in Israel? Make Elliot with a big fortune. You know, he, he could come with money. So if you can come like that, you're not coming to starve. Uh, so, Dan, let me tell you something. I can live a good life in Poland. I could live a good life in Eretz Yisrael. Why the heck should I stay in Poland? You know, that's the cheshman. You get it? If somebody's poor, they say, how will I survive in Israel? That's a separate question. You can say, I'll go anyway, and God will provide, and so on, you know, whatever. That, that certainly they did that. But if you're rich, you know, the shlo was like that also. Right, the shlo. He's not, he lived in the 1600s. I'm rich. I can live in Germany rich. I can live in Israel rich. He moved to Tzvash. You understand? Why not? Why would you Why, why would you want to live in Chutzlarts? So that's what our hero did. Uh, and, but for years he was planning this. So here's a guy who's a big rabbi in Poland in his 20s. I said in the 20s, in his 30s, in his 40s, in his 50s. It's a long time. And he's dreaming of Israel. And so one of the things he does, besides writing his master work on the Rambam, because he had a volume two, and he was always collecting material to fix up the Merkibus and Mishnah better, which is a sign of an author. And he wrote some others for him. I've never been into the others for him. Uh, Shulchan Aruch, whatever. I, don't know, I never got into that, but the Merkabah's a mission, yes. But he also wrote something very, very interesting, which has had a very, very interesting providence. And that is, he's so much in love with Israel that he writes a geography book of Israel, even though he never saw it. And he used Goyesha geography books because he had the education, he could read foreign languages. Right? See, Christian guys, and to to kind of calculate what Israel looks like from Bible sources and from later sources as well. It's called Chug Ha'aretz, right? And it's, a, it's an olive base in which it goes through every town. So it's basically like a geographical lexicon. Suppose I'm learning a Gemara. I'm just making this up. And I see a reference to, I don't know, B'nai Brock or something like this. Where the heck is B'nai Brock? So now I'm opening it. Let me see if I'm right or if I'm wrong. So I'm looking on the base. Let's see what he says. Bnei Brak, Ledon, Chasabamapa. He made a map based on, um, as they say, he got from Christian cartographers and all the rest of it, but he tweaked it for Jewish purposes. Ledon Chasabamapa. It's not where it should be in the tribe of Don. Ula Matzon Bamapa, Baaris Rutol Sober, Barak, Ula Mizrak Ekron Adani. So he calculates that Bnei Brak is to the east of Ekron. Which Ekron was a Philistine city, but the Philistines are on the border of the tribe of Don, or at least half of the tribe of Don. And I guess you're supposed to calculate from that. You know, I don't know. You're supposed to calculate from that. And he has a fold out map, which in my edition is separate. Right? So, like a big fold out map. And this is how you imagine Israel look. 
There's only going also made a map like that. I don't know what these guys said were exactly correct, but I'm looking at it. It's basically correct. I mean, you know, now remember, we're talking about the 18th century. He didn't have the modern stuff we have today. And, of course, we know a lot more about the geography of Israel simply because, you know, we have modern technology. We're talking about the 18th century when they did it. And it's kind of cute. I mean, you know, he, he clearly he wants to show you uh, how the book of Yeshua works out because there are a lot of kashas in the way they describe the different shvatim get a different piece of Yeshua. And he says that's one of his agendas. But he's got other things also. And I'm looking at it, you know, it's it's not a color map, but it's pretty much, it's very interesting, let's put it this way. And he draws the rivers and where he calculates the mountains are supposed to be. And the Yamamel, he's got more or less correct. And he's calculating where's Midbar Sin and all the rest of it. The Edom looks a little funny to me, but you know, so what? So what? So this whole book is like an attempt to make a geography preparatory to his own Aliyah. He says, if I'm not so good to get to Israel, at least I want to have a, a book about Israel. That's kind of nutty was Herod's Israel. This Safer um, had a funny history because he never published it. Um, eventually made Aliyah. We tried to. He got as far as Salonika. I told you, he had to go through the Turkish uh, uh, committee. But a guy like him, they would they'll love to have a Gaon who's a millionaire move to Israel. That'll help. Of course they're going to help him. So somehow or other he traveled from Poland to uh, Istanbul, which is not so hard because the Kingdom of Poland and the Turkish Empire were actually um, shared a border. That's where he used to have the Tatar Wars. But at the time we're talking about, in the 1770s, Poland and Turkey were friends against Russia. It's too too long to explain. I won't explain it now, but you know these are the Catherine the Great Wars. The first round of the 1760s and the second round of the 1790s, uh, when the Russians took a lot of territory from the Turkish Empire. You know, the whole area of southern Russia, Crimea, used to be part of the Turkish Empire. So it wasn't hard to go from, you know, from Poland to Istanbul. And from Istanbul, he went to Salonika. Uh, clearly, he went to Salonika because he wanted to publish the third volume of his uh, Merkavis Mishnah. So, I mean, even while he's traveling, he's writing, you know, constantly be Mechadish. That's you know, who he was, uh, and uh, it seems to be, the story is that when he got to Salonika, uh, they had one of those very frequent plagues, and he and his wife died, so he was only 64 years old, but it was one of those plagues that he died, so the book never got published, no, I'm wrong, some local Turkish, Talmud HaChamim, felt bad, and they, 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 they took his manuscript and published it as volume three, so, um, but because it wasn't published in Poland, it didn't circulate. So, like I tell you, the book didn't have such the, didn't have the mazel it deserves. I don't know why, it didn't have the mazel it deserves, and it didn't get out there the way you know, let's say did or some math or something like that. It got out there in the Merkava submission. It's very, very good, but it's a you know if you like that type of 18th century lamdas, I do, but you know not everybody does. Uh, it's very, very good, but it's um you know it's just. It, it, it it's you know not so well known I, like I said before I told you I came across it but ever since then I like it very much uh, this safer on the Kuka Aris uh, he left behind in Poland or something like that it was like a manuscript there's a Baltimore angle to this because uh, I, I uh, pursued this a little bit this was like in a manuscript with his drawings and maps and all the other business and uh it went, you know, from person to person. 
and, and, and I don't know who picked it up, but it ended up belonging to a Hungarian robe, the Rabbi Grossverdein, in Grossverdein, of up to the Holocaust. And maybe he got killed or something. He gave it to a Jewish guy in town. He said, you know, guard this. And the guy was sent to Auschwitz. And there's a story they threw off the train, whatever. I don't know exactly if that's true. But believe it or not, the book ended up in somebody's hand. The manuscript ended up in somebody's hands who emigrated to America. And somehow or other, they got into the hands of uh, Rabbi Drazen, Rabbi Nathan, Rabbi Dr. Nathan Drazen. He used to be a big rabbi in Baltimore. Years ago, modern Orthodox show, very nice person. I remember him. Um, he was the president of TA, you know. And Rabbi Dr. Nathan Drazen uh, was a big Mizrahi, and um, he had good, very good connections with uh, Moshe Cook and Machon Yushalayim and all that kind of stuff. And uh, he made Aliyah later, and. Um, and he gave it to this uh, Machon. I forget who he gave it to. And they published it. So I got my copy. I see I made a note in 1996. Uh, I picked it up somewhere in Israel. And I only got it because I, oh, I didn't remember Kevin's mission wrote this. And it's really, it's it's, it's cute. You understand? Chuka Arts HaShalem, Al-Gvul Eretz Yisrael, B'Tzirif Ma'apot, B'Tar Shemim, from the Balmer Kevin's mission, from Machon Rav Frank. I don't even know what Machon Rav Frank is. I mean, obviously, he's dedicated to publishing Three Days of Rain. Uh, and if you're interested, it's that kind of thing. Now, uh, in the intro to... Uh, well, let me stop this for a second. I've already gone long, but listen. Uh, the intro, it's very interesting, but long, to read the intro to McKevitt's admission. That's just interesting as a historic document. If any of you are interested in what I'm saying today, I never know, you know, what your interests lie. Um, your interest in this period of history and this person, you should take the trouble to get a hold of Merkeba's submission, which you can get on Hebrew books, and read the Hakdamas Arabah Machabra, his Hakdama, which is about 10 pages. See, it's long. Uh, and I don't know if you can read the rabbinic Hebrew. Not everybody can. It's like a Melissa dick, it's a flowery, and so on and so forth. But it is intensely interesting because he gives. What is, in his opinion, an intellectual survey of the level of learning and scholarship in the Jewish world, the Torah world, uh, in Eastern Europe in his day. Okay? Uh, and it's a pretty uh, sharp-tongued. Okay? I'll read you a tiny bit, because obviously I can't do a 10 pages, and I'm not going to do justice to it. But just to give you a tiny little bit of flavor... And that will encourage those of you who are interested in what I'm talking about to go look it up on your own because it's become a classic. It's also, right, it's also um, uh, very much historians are into this, but you don't have to know about that because the historians are always debating, especially recently, was he a real misnagin or not a misnagin? When he criticized the Hasidim, does he have the Baal Shemtim in mind, those type of Hasidim, or does he have a different type of Hasidim in mind, which there were? Because Val Shemtov, many people don't notice, was one of a number of different type of Hasidic movements or tendencies at that time in the first half of the 1700s in Poland. The others, uh, you know, died away and his shot like a rocket. So, you know, that's why you've never heard of the others. But there are books and things like that. That would be too specialized for us now. But let me uh, direct my attention, as they say, to read just a few lines 
from his from his Akdamba to the Merkevas of Mishnah. And he says, Yoduhu Mafursim, Adasa Lomdim Kitim Nefradim. Everybody knows that the learned, knows the intellectuals in, in here in Poland fall into three categories. Hakado Achas, the first are the Bikim, the people just know a lot. They don't understand it a lot, but they're Bukkies. You understand? They've covered a lot of ground and they've memorized a lot. So, Ligmar Gemara, They know a lot of Gemara, they covered a lot of ground, but they don't, they can't explain it too well. They understand the logic, they haven't learned it in depth. They can rattle it off for you, right? Very quickly. This is the type of guy who can run through many blot in an hour. And I know people like that, right? I know, I've seen in the original people in 50 blot in an hour. You can do that. But the question is, how well do you know it? Rots can speak, They're like birds are, uh, chirping. But they're too lazy. Meaning, it's not good. It's all done with one glance and there's no cheker in it. There's no analysis they're not really in it they're like a sponge they just suck it all in but they don't get it um, and he doesn't like that they, they can sing it off but they don't really understand it well right that's a certain type and some people don't have the the the, the head for for um um for agarata uh and they flee from the hard stuff like a sharp sword when we lost those and they're always you know quoting the safer alshach which is a fine safer and they always have good words there's no question agarata is one part of the torah uh one of the mem test panim and everybody likes something that's easy for everybody to understand. Whether you're smart or dumb, you can understand it. I got it to Vart. These guys are experts not in Shas, but in these uh, modern Svarim, the Al Sheikh, the Shla, and so forth. They regard those who are, are Lamdanim, right? They they regard them, uh, they look down upon them. Now, it's funny. See, the Agarita guys look down on the Lumdus guys. Yeah, but they, they, he says they have to because they're trying to protect their own dumbiness. He doesn't like the person who's into Iyun. Why are you spending all your time in this stuff? You can look in Shulchan Aruch. If you want to know the Halach Lamaisa. And it's all about getting the halacha right. So what he's wasting your time in all the pilpulim, levona kodem lechidudo, chachmas anashim lumada, gever gever chalotz. What's the word? Chalotz of yezer chazer altitz aglavalzer. Anyway, he goes on and on all this sort of thing, and you know he he says, why are you wasting your time? The work has already been. You can't be mechanish anything new. Anything good has already been explained already, right? Anything explained already. And then he talks about the people who are into Kabbalah. Okay? Uh, you know, I won't read all, all that. Uh, you know, they think they know Nister, but they, 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 in their hands are tied in Nigla. No, they don't know anything. 
Yesh lo yitzim in the stars for chamish per tzuv bezes spirits. They're supposed to know all the kabbalah stuff. Veich moli belas malus esulmos for Hashem. How did he imagine to do this? And they don't know how to learn. And uh, and then he says you have these chasidim. Uh, like I told you before, it's not clear if he's talking about the modern chasidic mood about shemtov or others. And their medal, he says they 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 carry on and shul and they do a lot of shtick. Uh, there are people who know nothing at all. They don't learn, they don't know Kabbalah. But they scream a lot in Shoal. Right? And they dress in a special way because the early Hasidim would insist on, you know, no, uh, what is it, no wool or something like that. And they scream so much it breaks half of you. Uh, what did they do? Uh, they, they, you know, they clap their hands and swing a lot in shul. They shake like lulavs. Their hair stands on end. New things that nobody ever saw before. But I've seen them. Afkilo Karvalo Shon, even though they didn't learn, Chakim Yisku Rebbe Yechuna, but they insist on being called a Rebbe. Cholmosi Betuna Bavayas, and the more you shake your body in davening, Meshubal Farba Pias, the more they like it. Taf Venashem. Veyachetz Chushim Evni, Dalia Sech Roshim. And they do very well with the dummies. So, it's a long passage, I'm only doing a tiny bit. Often quoted, as I say, in the Historians of Hasidism, in the 18th century. It's a big debate, and I won't give you the, you know, the particulars of it, you know, who he's referring to. But he goes on for 10 pages like this. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, uh, he's like Alexis de Tocqueville of the Jews, you know what I mean? He's surveying the sociology from the intellectual perspective of what's going on in Poland in, let's say, the 1750s, 1760s. So it's actually very fascinating. And as I say before, anybody's interested in this particular subject, this arcane subject, I would advise you very strongly to go read this extensive but very interesting uh, intro of the uh, Merkavah Samishna uh, to the, his Sefer, to the Rambam. Uh, but, as I said before, he had the misfortune of going to the Middle East at the time he knew nothing about public health. He died in Salonika. Salonika often had plagues. What these guys didn't realize was that when you go to a port city, especially in the Mediterranean, in the old days, before they knew about public health, you know what I'm saying? Before they knew about public health, um... How should I put it? You're taking your life in your hands. Uh, this was true of Baltimore, Maryland also, all the port cities. Because when a ship comes in, let's say, I'm just making this up, let's say a ship comes in from uh, Alexandria in Egypt. So, yeah, the guys get off the ship, and the schaira gets off the ship, but so do the rats, you get what I'm saying? So do the rodents. And they're bringing the disease with them, whatever was over there. And so this is how uh, Magaifa started all the time. And no one had the slightest idea. Now, in modern times, we have uh, health systems that's supposed to be in operation in port cities to prevent all this kind of stuff. It's highly regulated because it's necessary for public health. We got enough trouble with the corona junk. Imagine all this other business coming from the ships. Uh, so it's supposed to, uh, you know, uh, watch out for that. In those days, nobody had any idea. And so anybody lived in these port areas, oh, what can I tell you? What can I tell you? Anyway, so... Um, here you have an example of someone 
who was a huge goon. There's no question about that. You just look at him and I mean, uh, But cast isn't it very widely. And like many people, died trying to get to Israel in the 1700s. There is a controversy. I'll just share this with you. Then I have to end because I've already gone too long. There is a theory that he made it to Israel because there's a letter of Menachem Mendel Vitebsker who made it to Tiberia and he said, the, the the big rabbi from Poland, who's a millionaire, made it over here and bought himself a nice house. It, as best as I can tell, it's not true. You know, there are those who will debate that. It doesn't matter to you, you know, because um, if you say that way, then you say he lived a short time in Israel, then went to Salonika and published a book and died over there. So that level of detail shouldn't matter to us. Uh, he didn't get to have his dream, which is to settle down. The guy was only 60, 64 or whatever. So he could have spent 10, 15 years, 20 years living the life of Riley and Eretz Yisrael, uh, which is what he planned to do. You, you understand? Here's a guy who planned his retirement. Unfortunately, it didn't work out the way that he wanted. But um, anyway, for that, I, once again, I want to thank Jordomsky's. Uh, I'll say it again. I don't have any sponsors for this week. Um, I hope someone will step forward. Uh, but meanwhile, with that, I bid you a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.